A historical romance inspired by the book of Hosea ignites controversy in Christian circles. Are you just watching episode 125, Redeeming Love? Welcome to the podcast that shares critical thinking for the entertained Christian. I'm E. Franklin. I'm Tim Martin. And we're discussing a movie that's、um, kind of been raising a little bit of a controversy, controversy storm amongst Christians, anyway. It's got to be a controversy gate. Or we should call it Redeeming <laughs> Love Gate or something like that, because it's got to have gate on the end now, right?、Uh, <laughs> yeah. Well, I think the rest of the world is pretty much ignoring it. So the Christians are It's just in are Christian mad、circles. at it. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess that's the way it usually is. <laughs> When a movie that comes out that, you know, is targeting a Christian audience, though, I actually, I'm not entirely sure this movie is supposed to target a Christian audience. I don't think that was Francine Rivers' original idea of who should be reading the book, though it does make the circle of the church women quite frequently through the last couple decades. But I don't think that was her intended audience for the book or the movie, to be honest. Yeah, the original publisher was. Bantam, right? So that's not even a Christian publisher. Multinoma Publishers. Alabaster Books is who published the, one, the you've po- got? one I have. Yeah. So I don't know. I don't know about that. Multinoma Women's Fiction. Maybe、so. that, that's probably a, a subdivision of Bantam or something. Doesn't have Bantam at all on the copyright page. So maybe they picked it up later、uh, when it became、possible. popular.、Yep. I have one of the originals. So it was published in 97. Been around for a while. <laughs> yeah, I was well, thinking before- if you pick it up in one of the Christian bookstores, that would make sense that it was targeted at Christian women. A Christian audience. Yeah. 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 Well, Francine Rivers was a romance writer before she wrote Redeeming Love. So she probably had some connections in, in non Christian fiction, but everything she's written since rededicating her life to the Lord has been Christian fiction. So I would imagine she probably had to switch to a Christian publisher. Before we get into our initial reactions, we do need to talk about the music for the movie. The score was by Brian Tyler and Breton Vivian. I hope I'm saying their names right. <laughs> I actually found the music to be quite beautiful. It was heavy on the strings, which I absolutely、mm. adore string, string、yeah. orchestral music. So I did enjoy that quite a bit. It was all original, too, which is a nice change of pace. <laughs> yeah. Well, almost all original. Yeah. Yeah, I was going to say there were some songs in there that weren't, but those don't actually count towards the score. But yeah, the music was beautiful, and I'll play just a little bit of it right now. It's just a little bit of the score for the movie, but there was a song in there too that was really quite good. 
Yeah, so there's a scene in the movie where Michael and Angel are welcoming a new family to the area. And they all gather around a, a small bonfire. Campfire. Out, yeah. yeah. You know, I want to call it a campfire, but it's not at a camp. So I figure it should probably be a bonfire. Semantics. <laughs> and the father of the family pulls out a, was it a banjo or a guitar? And anyway, he plays a song which was very, very reminiscent of Oh Brother, Where Art Thou music to me. Mm. And I've always really appreciated that sound of of plucking and, and singing. The song is called Dry Bones, and, and I actually yeah. sought it out on my YouTube music list and added it to my favorites. <laughs> Cool. And just a side note, Willie Watson, who sings this song, was actually playing the person in the movie and sang it. So had a a musical person playing the role. John Altman was the character that he plays. Yes. So that was the music of the movie. I think it fit well with the story that there are parts of the soundtrack that are kind of discordant and hard to listen to, but those are all in the places of the movie where, you know, they were hard to watch scenes. So the music just added to, I guess, the teeth gritting nature of some of the subject matter. <laughs> yeah, they they were definitely cringeworthy moments. And the, yes. the music helped the cringing. Yeah, helped the cringe, right? <laughs> yeah. So going into more of our initial reactions of this movie, I have read this book multiple times. I have a copy of it, as we've already expressed. And it is a story that every time I read it, it doesn't matter how many times I've read it, how many times I know the story. When I get to the end, I cry because it it has such a beautiful picture of redemption in, in there. And it just it jerks the tears out of me every single time, even though I know how it ends. And I I pretty much have parts of this book memorized. It's just one of those things that it it gets an emotional response from me. And going into this movie, I thought that it would be different because usually movies are very different from the books. But I did find out that Francine Rivers was one of the screenplay writers and she kept all of the important parts. Everything that was important in the book was in the movie. And which I think is probably why the movie is over two hours long. <laughs> but, and you know, when you're condensing a book that's nearly 500 pages into into a, a screenplay that actually works, I can see where some of the considerations that have been made, some of the critical critiques that have been made about the movie could be true, that it doesn't do enough character development, uh, that it seems to assume that the people watching the movie kind of know who the characters are and what's happening. I think that's a sad thing that happens when you put a much-loved book into a movie format, you have to cater to the people who know the book really well, but you also have to produce a movie that can speak to somebody who's never read the book. And I think that's a a hard line to walk on a book as in-depth as this one, because no matter what she left out, there would be people that would be irate that it wasn't in there. Mm. And But it you can't put everything in or the movie's too long. So, you know... That's why I really am enjoying this new habit, I guess, of what I'm seeing where they're doing these eight-part miniseries on like Netflix or something mm-hmm. or Amazon Prime. And they're, they're taking eight hours to tell the story of a book instead of 
you know, trying to shove it into two hours. Right. And even though they still have to change stuff because you're going from the theater of the mind to a visual medium, mm-hmm. it they can still be a lot more accurate, a lot more true to the intent of the book. Which goes back to our discussion on the movie Dune, where yeah, we commented yeah. about the fact that they ended up just doing half the book. And I thought that that gave more opportunity to develop the characters. And so, yeah, it, it is hard when you're trying to shove a long story into a two-hour format. And You know, it, it paid off with Dune, too, because they got nine Oscar nods last week. Wow. Yeah. I don't even pay attention to awards anymore. But yeah, it's probably, I think, the only decent movie that they are taking note of at the Oscars. I hear Spider-Man didn't get anything. So, But for this movie, even though it is primarily intended probably for a Christian audience, because they are the audience that's read the book, it does have some objectionable content in it. And that's, I think, where a lot of the controversies come from. And we will talk more about the controversy. That's going to probably be about half our discussion is going to be on the controversy. But I did want to point out here in the initial reactions that there is partial nudity and there is some steamy sex in this movie. And I think that that is probably the biggest objection and the reason that it got a PG-13 rating. Mm-hmm. Most Christian mu- movies typically don't have PG-13 ratings. Yeah. Though I guess The Passion of the Christ was rated R. So. Yeah, true. <laughs> True. There were a couple Godiva moments yeah. in the movie, and there was one scene, it was one of those cringeworthy scenes, actually, mm-hmm. where she was trying to clean herself off in the stream that just, you know, it breaks your heart. But she's got her back to the camera, but she's topless and clearly see. To me, that was the least of the, because, I mean, she's completely naked in an earlier scene where there's yeah. only her hair hiding crucial parts so and then there was another scene where she was completely naked where it was just a artful posture and camera angle yeah yeah so the poses were very classic very classical renaissance type nude poses you know Mm -hmm. where they were made to to look like a painting as much as unlike hollywood today where they emphasize the sexuality, this seemed more to try and focus on the sensuality, if that makes sense. I mm-hmm. know it, it. it's not a big difference, but... Well, I, I do think they were pointing out the fact that as a prostitute, she was being objectified for her form. So, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, that that is, I mean, the whole reason why she was a prostitute or had been sold into prostitution. Yeah, yeah. But it does make for a movie that has objectionable content, especially for men who might struggle mm-hmm. with seeing flesh. And so, we are going to talk about that more. Yeah. The only other thing that I thought was left out of the movie, which has been commented on in, in some of the critical commentary, is the fact that there really is no clear presentation of the gospel. Now, that is a critique that I have heard multiple times about Christian movies is, you know, somehow or another, some character in the movie is supposed to stop, face the audience, and preach the gospel. And that rarely happens in movies, because that would be taking you outside of the story, and and it would be an interruption to the story. In this particular case, however, Michael is witnessing to his wife, Angel, and he does it frequently in the book. He brings out his Bible. He reads Bible verses to her. He pr- he frequently 
not necessarily preaches, but shares as much as possible Christ's love for her. And that was left out of the movie. And it does make maybe her redemption at the end and her turning to Christ in the in the moment of crisis maybe make not quite as much sense because you don't have that constant witnessing that he did for this period of time that they, they lived together as husband and wife. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's regretful that they ended up cutting that. But yeah. if we call that back to the intended audience question at the very beginning of our discussion, yeah, they might have specifically cut those portions so as to wield the silk glove instead of the Iron fist. (laughs) Fist, yeah. Because it is reasonable to think that you can have more impact with people by presenting very small portions of the gospel as as far as portraying God's character than Mm -hmm. just hitting them over the head with the Bible type thing. Right. So I don't begrudge them that. And I would actually begrudge them if, you know, like, like you said, one of the the actors turned, broke the fourth wall and said, now let me tell you about my savior. Yeah. And like I said earlier, they were dealing, they were trying to squeeze a fairly long story. As it was, they condensed quite a bit of the end of the book in the movie. There was a lot missing from the end, which was another critique that I've heard multiple times is that where was that beautiful ending? You know, why, why did they change the ending so much? And it's like, well, they were trying to squeeze a lot into this movie, and mm-hmm. that some of it suffered because of that. Hmm. So going into this movie, I had no expectations other than you warned me that it was a chick flick and <laughs> mentioned that it was inspired by the book of Hosea. And I normally am not a fan of Christian movies. A couple years back, I want to say about three years ago, we did War room. War room. I was I was going to yes. call it war closet, but that didn't sound right. <laughs> yeah. And that was pretty good. And I'm actually a fan of Kirk Cameron, but I can't say that I've seen any of his more recent movies, mostly because I don't feel it. I feel like it's when they try to be movies of faith. It's too easy for them to stray theologically, I guess. Whereas if it's mm-hmm. a mindless popcorn movie, like Jurassic Park turned into, then I'm a lot less likely to find objectionable stuff in it, I guess. Mm-hmm. But I was impressed with the production quality of Redeeming Love. Uh, I thought the sets and the costuming were were both top-notch. I mean, granted, I'm not a professional a theater professional or a professional reviewer or anything. But I thought the sets and costuming were really good. I thought the cinematography was beautiful, particularly when it came to the natural landscape shots, which Mm -hmm. we have since discovered that was all filmed in South Africa. Yeah. Or Africa. I don't know if it was all filmed in South Africa specifically, but... And the acting was decent. I would say it's it's on par with most regular movies maybe not yeah. like on the high end yeah but yeah, and yeah. you notice that a lot of the actors and actresses were pulled from you know regular hollywood so it's not like mm-hmm. these were like z list actors i mean they were like maybe b or c list actors yeah in fact the the lady who plays the madame at angel's brothel in paradise 
is the same lady who played Jean Grey in the original X-Men movies. And Eric Dane, who plays Duke, Mm -hmm. was the commander of The Last Ship, which was a series on CBS or NBC or one of those networks a number of years ago. And the lady who plays Angel's mother was one of the three main actors on the CW hit series, The Vampire Diaries. So anyway, I thought the acting was decent. Mm -hmm. You know, it wasn't Oscar-worthy material, but it was decent. I do want to say I was a little put off by the introduction to Michael Hosea, because the scene opens with him kneeling in a church and praying. And I don't know what it was about that scene, but he just seemed smug to me. I think it was the look on his face. Mm. He was looking up. It was presented as, you know, a conversation with God, which is a viable way to pray. Right. But it seemed like Michael was having a conversation with a peer, (laughs) not with his Lord and Savior. And that sort of rubbed me the wrong way. And it actually sort of it flavored my consumption of Michael through the rest of the movie. Yeah, and I, I'm looking back, I'm trying to think of how he is originally portrayed in the book, and it, it, that scene was not in the book. Yeah. So they so added that. Contrived to introduce us to him as a character. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the scene actually where he's unloading at Paradise and sees her for the first time, that's actually how he's introduced in the book. Okay. That's interesting because that actually ties into one of my other – it's not really a complaint as much as it is an observation. I feel like the movie took a few too many storytelling shortcuts. Mm-hmm. And some of these are from the book. I understand that. Some of these are in the movie. We need to apparently grasp right out of the gate that Michael Hosea is a pious man. So how do they introduce him? On his knees in the center of an empty church, praying out loud to God. That was actually not his first scene. It wasn't? No, yeah. He's working in the farm. He loads his wagon, gets the dog up beside him, stops on to the, at the church on his way in. Oh, uh, okay. And no, prays. I, I'd forgotten yeah. that. Okay. All right. Yeah. It's not the first scene, but it is definitely one of the first scenes. Uh, another shortcut was, and this may have been in the book, uh, Angel's Beauty is so legendary that literally hundreds of men have purchased lottery tickets for just the slim chance to partake of her services. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I don't know if it was in the book. I don't know if it was even, you know, historically accurate. It may be that there were prostitutes who were that popular in these gold gold mining towns. Well, you know that the best way to make money off of a product is to make it rare and in demand. Yeah, true. And they made money off the lottery tickets, and then they made money mm-hmm. off the, the winners of the lottery. So, Right, yeah. Capitalism at its best. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we're we're supposed to just immediately know that Michael is actually well-to-do for a farmer by the content of his prayer and, and how he ends by asking for someone he can share all this with. So I feel like there was a lot more opportunity storytelling-wise to show, not tell. Mm. I wish they had done that because I feel like it would have gotten it over the hump from a, a good movie to a better movie. Yeah, and like I said, I think this is the more evidence of that fine line you have to go yeah, between. Exactly. Putting everything in there that the book audience wants to see 
and yet explain all the stuff that the non-book audience doesn't know because they haven't read the book. And I think that that is one of the things that probably suffered was setting yeah. Michael up, setting his his character up a little better. I was not bugged by any of that. But then again, I've read the book. So I already mm. understood who Michael Hosea was supposed to be. One of the biggest critiques I have of the way they portrayed him was that he was actually portrayed as a very big, mighty man in the book. And they got a very small man to play him. So there were a lot of people <laughs> that felt that the the actor's uh, physique was not good enough, <laughs> though he was actually good looking enough anyway. It's very funny you should mention that, because in the movie, he goes into places where I expected a fight to break out, and none did. Mm -hmm. Particularly when he was trying to rescue Angel. One of the several times he has to do that in the movie. Well, there was a fight when he goes back to get her after she ran oh, away. Yeah, yeah uh, that's right. He like goes through three people to get her out of there. And that makes more sense if he's a big, you know... yeah. Yeah, it would have made more yeah. sense if he looked more like a football player. Yeah. <laughs> and so I guess it. I wish they hadn't taken those uh, shortcuts and did some more showing, not telling. But it might have made the movie too long. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. It might have hindered the movie in other ways. Yeah. And I already mentioned that I particularly liked the music, uh, particularly Dry Bones by Willie Watson. Mm -hmm. There was one last thing I wanted to mention, and it may be that I just didn't notice it until this movie, but I am seeing a lot more uplifting movies coming out of foreign independent production houses. So this one was co-produced by Pinnacle Peak Pictures, Mission Pictures International, and Nitba Pictures, all three of which are actually over – no, actually Pinnacle, I think, is U.S. But Mission Pictures yeah. International and, and Intaba Pictures are uh, in other countries. And I wonder if that might not be indicative of America moving away from trying to feed positive emotional messages in their no, movies too, and, and just – They're too you know, busy being woke. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> They're either embracing or doing both, embracing uh, wokeness or political correctness. I, I don't like calling it wokeness and trying to get as many explosions and car chases and, and fights in as possible. Yeah. Well, and it is it is the type of movie it is, too. So, and, you know, yeah. when I when I think of devout Christians, I don't think of people in the United States anymore. I think of people in China. And people in Ethiopia, mm -hmm. people who are going through. Living their faith despite opposition. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. I'm curious if that's just a perception thing for me or if it's actually – if my perception is is close to reality. Hmm. Yeah. Well, before we get into our discussion, I just want to remind everybody that you could be listening to this live if just you like were joining John. us on Discord. Just like John, yeah, who is currently listening to us live as we record this. Uh, you can join us on Discord by going to areyoujustwatching.com slash Discord, or you could join our Facebook community by going to areyoujustwatching.com slash community. We also want you to remember to subscribe, rate, and review our podcast so that you don't miss an episode when it comes out. 
And I'm going to start sprinkling these things throughout the podcast because I'm curious as to how many people actually listen to me at the end. (laughs) (laughs) So now you have to listen to them before we get to the discussion. Before we move right into the first topic, which is going to be the biggest discussion, I want to lead into it by saying some of the things that were changed from the book into the movie that I think are key points that kind of lead into the discussion that's coming up. In the book, Michael, when he rescues her from the brothel, he refuses to call her Angel. That is her prostitute name. He asks her what her name is, and she will not give him her name, which is actually a character trait that she has from the moment she sold into slavery as an eight-year-old all the way up until she's redeemed at the end of the book. She keeps her name to herself. Nobody knows what her name is. And so she's called Angel, and she goes by whatever name any man wants to call her. And since she refuses to give her real name to Michael, he gives her the name Amanda in the book. But that name is never raised in the movie. And I think it kind of detracts a little bit from dividing her character when she is his wife versus when she is playing the prostitute. And I think that was maybe an oversight that they should have done, because I think it it kind of loses the impact of when she does give him her real name at the end. and Yeah, I can definitely see that. Yeah. The other thing that I think was changed for a reason, I understand why they changed it, but it does maybe have a problem a little bit with the development of her character towards redemption at the end, was there's a scene at the end of the movie where she is taken back into Duke. Duke is the man who had Uh, bought her as a child and turned her into a prostitute. He's a pedophile and a very nasty, ugly, awful man. And he manages to get her back into his grasp when she runs away from Michael the last time. And he takes her and he forces her out on stage to become his lead prostitute again. And in the book, she, instead of you know, doing whatever she's supposed to do to allure the audience, she starts singing a hymn that she learned from Michael and Miriam. And that hymn draws somebody in off the street who ends up rescuing her. And it turns out that she was singing Rock of Ages. They don't, they kind of just say that she's singing the the hymn, but they don't tell you what it is until later on in the chapter. And she doesn't even know all the words, but she had learned it from Michael, and she felt like that's what God wanted her to do. And so she started singing it, and it it changed. It basically gave her the opportunity to be redeemed. In the movie, they skipped all of that. And I think the reason why they had her give a speech and just blatantly tell everybody Duke's sins in front of the crowd was because they hadn't developed the story earlier on that Miriam and Michael had taught her this hymn. So it wouldn't have made sense for her to just start belting it out when she didn't actually know it. (laughs) I know there's a reason why they didn't have her sing the hymn, but I think that that has also played into some of the critique that the movie has gotten is because they changed significant things in the end. And I think that a lot of those things were changed either for time or for character development's sake. You know, they just didn't have the chance to develop the character well enough for mm-hmm. for the ending to make sense without making some significant cuts and changes. But that leads into our discussion as to why this movie is not considered appropriate for Christian audiences. 
And that is what I've been reading everywhere. It's it's in pretty much every Christian blog. I have several Christian friends who have spoken adamantly against this movie in social media. You know, Christian women should not be going to see this. Christian men should not be going to see this. They should not be supporting this Christian entertainment. It's a big taboo subject everywhere. And... I think that gives us the greatest opportunity to discuss this movie because typically we don't discuss Christian movies in this podcast because we're usually dealing with applying our Christian worldview to secular entertainment. When you're doing working with a Christian movie, it's already a Christian worldview. So yeah. it's a little bit harder to discuss it. And in this instance, we need to discuss the controversy because the Christian audience that this movie was or was not, depending on how you view it, designed for, and why it would be inappropriate. Now, there are a couple things in this movie that are hard to watch. And I think that those things are not necessarily what make it inappropriate, though I think a lot of people use those things against the book. And one of them is Angel's past, the fact that she was the illegitimate daughter of a mistress, a kept mistress, And she was spurned by her father. And when her mother dies, she's sold into slavery at the age of eight, sexual slavery. And in the book, that takes up like the first, maybe eighth of the book, is telling the story about how Angel is sold into this horrific life. And her name is Sarah. Her real name is Sarah. And her mother loved her. Her father spurned her because she was illegitimate. He had a wife. In fact, there's a at the scene in the movie where he says, I, get, I sent you to a doctor to get rid of that mess. She wasn't supposed to have a child. So it's it's a hard subject to talk about. And I think that as Christians, if we are not going to deal with the hard topics of our society, that there are people who are sold through no choice of their own into a mm-hmm. horrible lifestyle. And they feel filthy and they feel trapped, lost and bereft and unworthy because of no fault of their own. And they have no other choice. They don't know what else to do. If we can't face that there are people like that in the world and have a way to reach out to them, then I think that uh, we're missing out. I appreciate the fact that this movie deals, uh, the book especially, deals with this topic Because it's not something that we as Christian women, a lot of times in our happy Western lives, are faced with. It's a sad part of life that there are women, lots of women, lots of girls in our world today, and not just in third world countries, in our world, in our cities, with the Super Bowl coming up. I remember reading something on the human trafficking ministries that say that some of the worst human trafficking occurs during the Super Bowl. Hmm. And that just breaks my heart because we don't think of it here in our Western culture. We don't think of the fact that that there are men that take pleasure in raping little girls and, and teen girls who have been stolen and have no opportunity to get away. Yeah. Yeah. It's when you when you see her angel's age, you know, in the movie when she's first taken to uh, the brothel. It just, it boggles the mind. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think of when my girls were that age or the the kids at church who are currently that age, 
And I, I cannot fathom them being exposed to that kind of depravity. Yeah. Uh, it just, it rips your heart out. Yeah. And so, yes, this, there's content in this, in this movie that is hard and it's a hard topic. And I'm, and even set in Gold Rush, California is no less hard then as it is now. And that is, is a difficult thing. Now, what makes this movie not appropriate, as, as we've already discussed earlier, it does have nudity. Well, not full nudity, but it might as well be nudity. <laughs> it's only well, careful yeah. postures. Yeah, it might as yeah. well just, I mean, you, there's not enough left to your imagination. It has, it has enough skin to inspire lustful feelings, which is right. like, it's, it's like the definition of nudity for a Christian. Right. Not for a Game of Thrones director, but for a Christian. Yes, yes, it shows enough. And the sex scenes, I don't particularly like sex scenes in anything. And it's not something that I am comfortable watching in any setting, let alone a quote unquote Christian movie. I always look away. I don't, it's not something that I like to watch. I, when I'm reading books that contain it, I skip those pages. I'll sometimes skim just enough for dialogue to see when it's done. And then I start reading again. I have always been that way. It's not something that I care to read and or to watch. And I can see why some, you know, Christian leaders or what have you, bloggists, however you want to refer to many of them, uh, take issue with the book and the movie because of that. But yeah, this is the, I mean, it is what it is that that is what the problem with the movie is from Christian audience standpoint. It went too far. And I will completely agree with that. It, it went too far in a few scenes. And so the question comes, was it appropriate for the, it to go that far? Did it communicate anything worthwhile with those scenes? Yeah. Coming from a Christian man's perspective, and not just necessarily a Christian man's perspective, but a Christian perspective, I can understand the position expressed in the Gospel Coalition article that mm -hmm. you and I both link to independently, Yes, where it's wrong to have two actors simulating making love, even if the characters are man and wife. Because the actors aren't married. Right. Uh, so I can certainly see where they're coming from. It does make it challenging to portray that kind of relationship. And many people point out that, myself included, that, you know, if we made a accurate movie of the Bible, which granted would be a you know, 600 hours, it would be rated R. Right. By our rating standards. There's not really a, a way to portray this with live actors. But at the same time, I think Redeeming Love could have been just as good as it was by implication. Right. By showing the very beginning of those scenes and then, you know, fading away like they used to do. <laughs> yeah. Switching to clouds. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Or fireworks or something. I don't or know. Fireworks. Yeah. Now, I'm going to interrupt you just a little bit yeah. because I, 
I want to say why they did it. And I think I understood why they did it. And the reasoning why they showed as much as they did. And that is because of the nature of sex for Angel. Okay. We don't see her in any of the prostitution. They always leave that up to the imagination. They don't show any of the bed scenes with her being, it's always them paying and leaving. You never see her in bed with anybody as a prostitute. Mm -hmm. But the few times that she tries to initiate something with Michael, in the beginning, it's all her paying him back for rescuing her. And it's not genuine on her side. Oh, yeah. And he turns her away every time. And so when they finally do have sex in the movie, it is genuine for both of them. And I think they show as much as they do because they want to show that Angel is in it as much as he is. Okay. That seems reasonable. That is not something you can leave up to the imagination because we've already established for her character that sex is work and not pleasure. And so for the movie to show that it has ceased to be work and it has become pleasure, we have to see enough of her reaction to their copulation or whatever to know that she's enjoying it. So that is the why I think they went as far as they did. It was necessary to show that she was participating in a a loving husband and wife relationship rather than right. Uh, right. as a sex worker. I, I right. can see that. I don't, I still don't think it's appropriate, but I think that's why yeah. they did it. I feel like that this becomes a hang up for a lot of people when they are watching a movie that is a targeted audience like this one. And my only question is, I'm I'm fine with people boycotting movies for these types of reasons. If it's not right for you, don't go see the movie. If you don't think in good conscience that other people should see it, then it's okay for you to speak out against it as long as you're consistent. The thing that bothers me, and, and perhaps this may not be an issue for a lot of the authors that were writing in blogs or whatever, is don't go promoting a secular movie that has the same kind of content. Mm-hmm. Because if you're not willing to promote it in a Christian movie, then don't promote it in any movie. Yeah. Because you need to be consistent in that application. I have seen movies that went a lot further than this movie went and showed oh, yeah. a lot worse things. And they get popular acclaim, not because of the sexual content. It's just they get popular acclaim and nobody makes fun of them or says people shouldn't go see them because of the sexual content. And you know, let's just be consistent. Yeah, I feel like the folks who are holding it up as being a movie that you shouldn't go see are doing so in part because they feel like since it has a inspired by a book of the Bible tag on it, then it should be completely virtuous and and clean they, for they all They feel audiences. like it's hypocritical yeah. or something. Yeah. When really, you know, it, when Game of Thrones was on, I despaired when I heard folks at church talking about watching Game of Thrones. Mm-hmm. Because I've read the first four Game of Thrones books, and they were bad enough isn't the right word, but they were filled enough with questionable content. But then when HBO did it, suddenly 
holy mackerel, there's all kinds of flesh. And I, I didn't make it past the first episode. Kayla and I watched it because I really enjoyed the books. Right. And we finished that first episode. We were like, what was that? And I, I admit, I've universally, most people are against Game of Thrones. I mean, as a viewing yeah. experience. Everybody I've ever heard talk about it say it was bad. I've not seen it myself. And I've come to the conclusion that anything made by HBO, you might as well just say, it's bad. Don't go watch it. But at the same time, I've actually heard a lot of Christians say they've seen Game of Thrones. Yeah. And I have watched Game of Thrones who have problems with the content, but they watch it anyway. And so I guess my position on this is just be consistent of your application. If you're going to be upset about this movie because of really quite what it's bad, but in comparison to most of what Hollywood does, it was actually quite tame. Yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. This is stuff that back in the 80s would have been difficult to stomach in in Hollywood, but this was practically CW material in this movie. <laughs> yeah. Stuff you see on TV kind of thing. Yeah. Though I, the nudity may have pushed the envelope a little bit. Yeah, that's true. So then the, the second question is, we've dealt with, you know, the hard stuff, you know. The second question is, is this based on the book of Hosea? I've seen lots of commentary that says, if you want to read a book about the book of Hosea, go read the book of Hosea. <laughs> now, well, they're, they're not wrong. <laughs> they're not wrong. Yes, you should go read the book of Hosea. It's part of the Bible. You should be reading your Bible, period. Just for the sake of this podcast, I went and reread the book of Hosea. It's been a while. And... Really, to be honest, the entire story that the, inspires this book and movie is the basically the first chapter. <laughs> and everything else is prophetic. So it, there's really very little about the book of Hosea that is spoken of. In, though I will say that after rereading this, I do think that the chapter 14, the final chapter of the book of Hosea, does play a little bit into the end of it. Mm-hmm. But for the most part, it is the allegory of the book of Hosea and the significance of the allegory of the book of Hosea that yeah. is lost in this story completely. Yeah, you you lose the hermeneutics yes. of the, the biblical book in the telling of redeeming love. But at the same time, I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing because it, the allegory itself, itself is still a good story because God is – using Hosea to show how Israel has abandoned their their covenantal relationship with God. And mm-hmm. that and that's the whole reason that God instructs Hosea to to marry Gomer, right? Right. And Gomer's a promiscuous woman who departs and and comes back and departs and comes back. But it's to show how God stays faithful to the covenant even though Israel doesn't. And that part is completely lost. But there is still the redemption portion of this allegory that stays in redeeming love. It's it's in the title. (laughs) You sort of got to keep it in there. And that is every bit as valid in the movie as it is a Christian lesson. Right. And you feel it at the end of the movie. You do feel it at the end of the movie, all the other stuff and aside. 
that's why I cry when I watch it. In fact, the scene that you mentioned earlier that you thought was a little too much nudity, it didn't bother me as much as the actual emotion of the scene was where she's cleaning herself, trying to clean herself, where he he comes and he gets her after she returned to her prostitute mm-hmm. life. And he brings her back because he loves her. And she feels so unclean that she gets down in the creek and literally is scrubbing her skin off with rocks. That's how dirty she feels. And she cannot get herself clean. And that scene, I was, I couldn't hold the tears in because that is the picture of what sin does to us. It doesn't matter whether we're not prostitutes who have sold ourselves into sexual sin. We are filthy in the eyes of God. We are like, yeah, like minstrel rags <laughs> in yeah. the eyes of God. We're just absolutely filthy. And, you know, if you don't ever feel that need to clean yourself, that need to somehow be clean enough to deserve that love, then you haven't repented of your sinful nature because we should all get that low at some point. Now, I'm not saying we can clean ourselves and Angel couldn't get herself clean. That's not that's kind of the, the picture of it is at the worthlessness of trying to clean yourself. It just doesn't work. And I got my copy of the book back. I had lent it out and I wanted to read it. There's a note from Francine Rivers at the end of the book about why I wrote Redeeming Love. And she tells a little bit of her backstory, her background. And I'm not going to read it all because it would take up the rest of our podcast. And we don't have time for that. But I do want to read a couple paragraphs out of this because I think it really speaks to some of the controversy that has arisen about the nature of this book. So she was a romance writer prior to becoming, I guess, an authentic Christian. It says she was raised in a Christian home, but she was not an authentic Christian. She says, writing was my escape from the world in hard times. It was always the one area of my life where I believed mistakenly that I had complete control. I could create characters and stories to suit me. I wrote romances for the secular market, and I read them voraciously. Her husband, Rick, once said, if you had to choose between me and the children or your writing, you would take your writing. At the time he said it, it was sadly true. And then she speaks about how she got into a church where she actually found the Lord and and became committed to the Lord. And I'm going to skip forward. She says, I believe we all serve someone in this life. For the first 38 years of mine, I served myself. My conversion was not a highly emotional experience. It was a conscious, thought-out decision that changed my focus, my direction, my heart, my life. But I don't want to mislead anyone. It was not all peace and light afterward. The first thing that happened was that I couldn't write. Oh, I tried, but it didn't feel right. Writing just didn't work for me anymore. I couldn't escape into it. I had given myself to the Lord, and he had something else in mind. I finally accepted that it might not even be in his plan that I ever write again, and I surrendered. What I came to understand was that he wanted me to get to know him first. He wanted no other gods in my life, not my family, not my writing, nothing. And she goes on to say she started craving the word. She started reading it cover to cover again and again and again, and she started to pray. And then... Skipping a little further on, she says, writing redeeming love was a form of worship for me. Through it, I was able to thank God for loving me, even when I was defiant, rebellious, contemptuous of what I thought being a Christian meant, and afraid to give my heart away. I had wanted to be my own God and have control of my life the way Eve did in the Garden of Eden. Now I know to be loved by Christ is the ultimate joy and fulfillment. Everything in redeeming love was a gift from the Lord. Plot, characters, theme, none of it is mine to claim. 
There are many who struggle to survive in life, many who have been used and abused in the name of love, many who have been sacrificed on the altars of pleasure and freedom. But the freedom the world offers is, in reality, false. Too many have awakened one day to discover they are in bondage. They have no idea how to escape. It is for people such as these that I wrote Redeeming Love, people who fight as I did to be their own gods, only to find in the end that they are lost, desperate, and terribly alone. I want to bring the truth to those trapped in lies and darkness, to tell them that God is there, He is real, and He loves them no matter what. So... I thought that was important to read because I think that a lot of the people that are speaking out against this book and this movie haven't read it and they haven't watched the movie and they don't understand why Francine wrote it. Wow. Uh, (laughs) Speechless. (laughs) You know, the question of whether or not it's appropriate for all audiences, the straightforward answer for me is it's not, but you need to know what your temptations are. Right. I know that there are people who can go in and watch this implied sexual situations and the borderline nudity and be completely unaffected by it. Mm -hmm. But there are many, many more people, mostly men who can't. It's they, they fill in the blanks the way that they wish they could be filled in, you know? Yeah. And it, it for me it brought to mind um first John uh two sixteen. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride in one's possessions, it's not from the Father, but it is from the world. And we need to be aware of the impact that the world has on us. And there are people who are not tempted by these offerings from the world and they can just pass them by. And there are people who are going to be thinking about it when they lay in bed at night. And there are people who are going to be recalling it days for days afterwards. Mm-hmm. So it's the thing that ins- it's the sin that enslaves them. Just like angel didn't have a choice in what enslaved her. And, but we do have choices. So you have to be careful about what you expose yourself to. Yeah. And, and it's interesting that, you know, you bring up the fact that for men, it is seeing the, the pornography and redeeming love was actually introduced to me. The concept of redeeming love as a, as a gateway to pornography was introduced to me before the movie was even spoken about. When I went to a women's conference several years ago, there was a speaker there by the name of Felicia Masonheimer. And she actually spoke during her lecture at this conference about how redeeming love had introduced so many women in the church to pornography through what women are most susceptible to. We're not as susceptible to the visual, but the reason why you see so many women reading romance novels is that we become addicted to the emotions, the happily ever after, the beauty of this romantic relationship between a man and a woman, not the sex. Mm -hmm. The sex really doesn't do much for most women. That's not where our our frailty is. But we do become addicted to that feel good emotion and that it sets unrealistic expectations, especially for young women who have never had a relationship before. They then think that these perfect happily ever after stories that they read in the dime store romance novels is how real life really works and how Mm. sex really works. And it isn't true that none of it is. It's all idealized in the books. And so what it does is it, it creates these 
unrealistic expectations that when you meet a man, that he's going to be like Michael Hosea, and he's going to be perfectly forgiving whenever you flub up, and he's always going to love you no matter what. And there's so much fantasy involved in that because we're all frail humanity, and our our men are not God. <laughs> and yeah. so while the sex and the nudity can be a stumbling block for men, the happily ever after and the the redeeming relationship of this perfect marriage is the stumbling block for the women. And I get her point. When I listened to her, I, I was like, I can see that. I've been reading romances my whole life. I can see how that sets up unrealistic expectations for how relationships work. I understand that. I'm not entirely sure I'm on the same level as her to then just say it it shouldn't exist in, in your life and you should never read it. I think in that aspect, as a avid reader, I wouldn't be able to read anything because mm. reading sets up un- unrealistic expectations. It's fiction. Yeah. You're living in a fantasy world when you read fiction, regardless of whether it has to do with relationships or not. Yeah. So you just, you have to learn. And, and I think this goes back to the whole point of our podcast. You have to learn to be discerning, not only in what you watch, but in the messages you allow to sink into your heart about the things you watch, that you know it's fiction, you know it's not real. And and you have to be able to know where where your lines are and don't cross yeah. them. Yeah, actually, uh, Proverbs twenty five twenty six says, a righteous person who yields to the wicked is like a muddied spring or a polluted well. Mm-hmm. That's what we become when we embrace even reading stuff that that is not godly. And right. I don't mean, you know, we have to all just go out and read Tim Keller <laughs> constantly or just the Bible you know, over RC and over again. Or, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but we should uh, try to avoid reading and watching and participating in activities that will lead us away from God. Yeah. That will encourage us to embrace something other than the characteristics right. of God. And that, and like I said, and that just brings, wraps us back around to what we typically talk about in our podcast is, can we honestly say that anything that we have reviewed in this podcast, if we looked at it from the same standpoint as Christians are looking at this movie in particular, Mm -hmm. should we be watching anything? Yeah. I mean, that is between you and God and the prompting of the spirit and what you are capable of imbibing without faltering your faith, you know? Yeah. Yeah. We want to stress that warning that you need to be discerning. Right. Because, uh, you know, as the host of this podcast, we bear a responsibility if we say, oh, you've got to go out and see this movie. And it ends up being, um, if you'll excuse the the snowflake reference here, it ends up being a trigger for one of the people who goes and sees it at our recommendation. Mm -hmm. So we want you to be aware of what's in it. And, you know, we haven't pitched plugged in in quite a while. (laughs) But one of the things I really like about plugged in is they break down the content so you can know whether or not the movie has any of your particular triggers in there. Right. It might be that you're a recovering alcoholic and just seeing 
somebody with a, a scotch on the rocks on screen, which happened to be your favorite drink, mm-hmm. is a challenge. Or you are trying to quit smoking and, you know, there's a person on screen who lights up a cigarette and plugged in actually breaks all of those out. And right. I, I really appreciate the intent there mm-hmm. to do that. And to tie that into Matthew five nineteen, it says, therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commands and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So when you lead others, period, you are held to a higher standard. Mm-hmm. So yeah. even with our, you know, six listeners <laughs> or however many we have, <laughs> you know, we have a responsibility and we sincerely hope that we are fulfilling that responsibility. And uh, we ask that if we're not, if we ever say something that you guys think we should be called out on, do it, please call us out. Yes. Uh, yes, we can, definitely. We can take it. <laughs> yep, we we definitely can. We'll even put it in one of our shows that we you know made a mistake and absolutely and it. Mea yeah. culpa, baby. <laughs> well, you know, and the issue is, is that you know, in doing this podcast, there have been times when we, in our own viewing, may have crossed the line because we watched things that we wanted to watch in order to. Or I think I said it when I did the one about the suicide, what is it, 13 Reasons Why, that you didn't watch. I think I said in there, I watched it so you don't have to. But some of that is because we know where our lines are, and we're typically pretty careful not to cross them. There are some things out there that I will not watch. And And the Daily Wire- I couldn't do that one. I couldn't do the 13 Reasons. Yeah, and I didn't ask you to, remember? Yep, yeah, I, <laughs> I watched it and I said... I, I, I appreciated I, I, it. <laughs> so yeah, there are some things that, that we have to know where our limits are, our spiritual limits are, and not cross those. And that's the point I make in my book that I have out, the Are You Just Watching book. Mm-hmm. I make that point in there is that before you ever watch your first movie in the to the intent of watching it critically from a Christian worldview, you have to know where your Christian worldview is and where your walk with the Lord is. You have to establish that before you go into battle, because really that's what it is when you're facing yourself in the secular world. And maybe that's why this movie gets so much, you know, being shamed so much uh, by these bloggers and Christian leaders and such is because it dared to say that it was for a Christian audience and, there were scenes in it that were not appropriate for that, for all of that audience. And so, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, it is what it is. And yeah. of course, we can't leave this without talking about the, the topic of conscience or the weaker brother. Don't yeah. lead your weaker Christian brother or sister astray by offering to take them to see this movie or giving them a copy of the book and saying, mm-hmm. oh, you should read this. That's one of the things Felicia had brought up in her thing is that especially for uninitiated young Christian girls, you don't go passing around the copy of Redeeming Love to them. Number one, it has topics in it that children of that age should not have to read about. And number two, it introduces them to, you know, the the whole false expectations and relationships prior to them ever even thinking about dating a man or being courted or however you Mm -hmm. do it in your Christian circles. And so, yeah, it's not appropriate for all audiences. And I don't think that 
Francine Rivers intended it for all audiences. But if you know a young woman who has perhaps been uh, saved from sexual slavery, or a woman who is leaving a very secular lifestyle where she has slept around a lot, and there are a lot of women in our culture today who sleep around a lot. Yeah. Before they even get out of high school or college. Yeah, even among our children. Yeah. Who is attempting to make themselves into somebody that Christ would love. And you see them struggling with that. I think Redeeming Love might be a good book to hand to them. Because it shows somebody who, who discovers that she can't clean herself. That she has to be cleansed by God, that he's reaching out to her in love and not, and that she doesn't have to make herself appropriate for his love, that he loves her anyway. God loves us even in our worst sin. Right. And if we try, if we work on our own sanctification, it pleases him. Yeah. But he loves us either way. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So I don't want to harp on that anymore. We've still got a few more things we want to talk about in this. But that is probably the the biggest thing, and we needed to deal with that before we talked about anything else, because it is something that has, I think, probably going to hurt the film. It's It probably will end up not making a ton of money, because the audience that it was intended for is being warned away and not watching it. Mm-hmm. And you know what? They deserve the warning. When I presented this movie as a possible review for February, I did actually put in our Discord channel, mm-hmm. warning this is what's in the movie. See it at your own risk. So I have a feeling a lot of people are going to listen to this review who haven't seen the movie. And I'm not telling you, you have to go see it. I really am not. That's entirely between you and God. And we've spoken, I think, extensively as to reasons why you may not want to see it. Yep. Yep. And before we go on, you can find the show notes to this episode at areyoujustwatching.com slash 125-125. You can give us feedback at 513-818-2959, or you can email feedback at areyoujustwatching.com. We do appreciate your feedback. As Tim just said, we do want to have you telling us what you think about our reviews. So, you know, if we go wrong in reviewing something or it sounds like we're encouraging you to see something you shouldn't see or or however we tread on these matters, then uh, we need to be careful. And uh, we want to hear about, about it yeah. from you. Yeah, it's, you know, a big part of being a Christian is the fellowship of our brothers and sisters in Christ. And as part of a family, we should not be afraid to hold each other accountable. And frankly, we should not be hostile to those that do hold us accountable. They may be wrong. uh, They may be right. But we should be listening with an open mind and judging it with Scripture. And we need to keep in mind that, you know, even though Scripture doesn't mean different, doesn't have a, a different meaning to different people, everybody's going to have a different perspective with how it applies to their life. Right. It's important that we empathize right, with our brothers and sisters. Exactly. And empathy is actually part of the next mini theme that we wanted to discuss. And that was that there are, as you've mentioned, several scenes in this movie and several themes, at least one theme in this movie that is very hard to stomach. Yes. The human trafficking, which 
is every bit a problem as today yes. as as it was in 1849 or redeeming love takes place in 1853 i believe yeah or even in the time of hosea i mean yeah exactly women were property back in in those days and to be honest our existence as property has only ceased to be as much of an issue in probably in the last 100 years when women's mm-hmm. liberation really kicked in and got us the right to vote and own property and go to school and all of these wonderful things that the suffragettes earned us in the early 1900s. But women have been property for a very long time and not had a lot of say in what happens to them once they leave their father's house or even in their father's house. And so, you know, watching is something like this where you see a little girl who is sold into sexual slavery and has really no choice. And and I've harped on this already, but we have women all over the world that are sold into this exact same thing, even today. And it doesn't just happen in third world countries. It does happen in third world countries, but it does happen here as well. I would say that a good significant number of the little girls that go missing on a daily, weekly, or yearly basis are going missing because they are being kidnapped and and sold into this kind of slavery. And it just breaks my heart. There's a lot of really good ministries that are actively engaged in trying to buy women out of this culture, the sin, especially little girls. And so we'll we'll make sure that we post some good ones in our show notes so that you can check them out, donate to them, help in any way you think you can, because this is not an old problem. This is a new problem. We talk about, in our politically correct culture, we talk about slavery as if it's something that has was abolished after the Civil War. And a type of slavery was abolished by the Civil War, after the right. Civil War. But slavery has always existed. It always will exist. And it is something that we as Christians need to always be actively working against and freeing the people who are lost in it. Mm. And, you know, there's an, another scene in Redeeming Love that was uh, very much like a, a rape scene to me, and that's where Duke forces Angel to have an abortion. Mm-hmm. We're not talking Plan B pills or whatever they're called. We're talking... Hold her down and rip the baby out kind of thing. Yeah. 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 Nineteenth, Late 19th century stuff. So not only did she lose the baby that she wanted and the, you know, abortion being so horrific already Mm -hmm. forced on her, but she's violated to do it. And I had to look away. Yeah. And, you know, it's hard not to feel for the characters on the screen. The entire point of a storyteller is to get you to sympathize with, with the characters. It's, it's a very important part that you need to be able to put yourself in the character's shoes at least a little bit. And empathy is important to Christians. Romans twelve fifteen says, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. And frankly, it's very hard to be a good witness if you can't empathize and sympathize with the, the people around you, brothers and sisters in Christ and unbelievers. Mm-hmm. In particular, it's important to be able to to share an understanding of how they may, may feel trapped in, in their situations. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that is, 
you know, I, I think a lot of Christians get militant against abortion and how it, you know, women who have had abortions. And I think that that is a good reminder. You know, one of the reasons why Angel runs away from Michael at the end she he brings her back and they actually have a good marriage for a little while until he makes a comment about wanting children and sharing you know this with children and and it just reminds her that duke had taken away her ability to have children and then he she sees this wholesome young woman come in this new family who is beautiful and pure and able to have children and she's like if i leave then he'll marry her and have that family that God, you know, wants him to have, and I can't give him. So I'll Mm -hmm. leave for his benefit, and I won't return because I want him to marry her and have kids. And so she leaves for his sake this last time because she felt so inadequate to be his wife when, you know, she had been tainted by abortion. And once again, it wasn't even her fault. But we need to be sensitive to treating women who have had abortions, whether or not they chose to have it. And I would say that a lot of abortions in our world today, even though, you know, Planned Parenthood is always going on and on and on about choice and that women should have the choice and women should have the choice. I would say that probably as many as 50 percent, if not much higher, are done out of pressure from people in their lives telling them that they have to have an abortion if they A, want to continue in a relationship with their boyfriend, or B, want to have a career, or C, uh, yep. want to finish their schooling. There's all of these societal pressure on them saying you can't do any of this stuff if you have a baby. And I would say that that pressure is as unfortunate and it removes their choice. They're being coerced into having an abortion. I would say a lot of that is true in today's day and age, that a lot of women have abortions because of that type of coercion. And so we need to treat everyone who is seeking the forgiveness of God for sins of the past. We have to take into account that all sin is evil in the sight of God, regardless of what little sins you think is in your past and what big sins you think are in other people's past. We need to not be militant against their sins and treat them with the proper compassion, uh, knowing that God can wash away that sin as well. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, So you had put in here, and I think it's a really good scripture to finish that out with, um, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep, Romans 12, 15. Mm. It, It really is how we should treat all of our sisters and brothers who are struggling with sin and who find redemption in the love of Christ. And moving on, Are You Just Watching is listener supported. We want to give thanks to our current patrons, Isaiah Santiano, Craig Hardy, Stephen Brown II, David Lefton, and Peter Chapman for their generous support. You can support us by going to patreon.com slash are you just watching, or you can go to paypal.com paypal me slash paypal me slash AYJW. And we really appreciate your support. So you keep this podcast going and uh, Tim and I take that as at least in part as an indication that there are still mm. people out there listening and wanting us to keep doing this. So <laughs> yes. We don't get a ton of feedback from our listeners, and that money is in part a useful feedback. We know that people are willing to give a small amount on a monthly basis to keep us doing that, and it really means a lot to us. Thank you very much. Indeed. Thank you. 
There was one more topic that I just wanted to briefly touch on. Uh, and frankly, we have touched on it a lot over the course <laughs> of our discussion. Um, right. But the trapped mind is on full display in Redeeming mm-hmm. Love. And it really ties into the discussions we've had on being able to empathize with the people we're trying to reach and human trafficking. And I feel like it is demonstrated well in the movie Redeeming Love. I assume it's just as prevalently presented in the source material. But the way that Angel and the other girls have a resigned acceptance to being mm-hmm. trapped in these circumstances. And in particular, these girls, they have to wear a mask of eagerness because, you know, the customers that come in and partake of their services would complain and the dukes and the duchesses of, of the world would punish girls who are costing them money by not being fully involved with the task. Right. If they don't at least feign eagerness, they risk violence or worse from the, the people who had them trapped. And I felt like the actors in, in Redeeming Love did a, a pretty good job of of showing that level of uh, being both hopelessly trapped and feigning participation, feigning uh, acceptance, or rather accepting it and feigning eagerness. There are a couple lines in there that really called it out to me. When Michael, who has decided that Angel is the woman that God intends him to marry, comes in and they're talking and he says, don't you even want to know my name? And she says, I don't want to know your name. And I I imagine that's because any connection to people on the outside could be emotionally dangerous or even physically dangerous. Yeah, there was that scene later on where she's having that talk with Paul and Mm -hmm. she says, should I remember you? And he says, yeah, I would imagine all the faces look alike after a while. And she's like, and other parts too. So you, you get the feeling that, you know, it's just a series of bodies that she's interacted with and she doesn't care about any of them and she doesn't remember any of them because yeah. they're not memorable. And, you know, the the life that she's being forced to live, there's a scene later on where Michael says, you did not choose the life that you had, but you can choose the life that you want. And she replies, I, I chose to die. Yeah. yeah. And especially uh, as somebody who has lived with depression for decades, mm-hmm. it you know, that really is what depression feels like very often. And when she said that, I, I could feel that. And I just, I wanted to call it out. Yeah. And she'd said earlier in discussion with her fellow prostitutes, you know, she made the comment that she doesn't look back and she doesn't look forward. She's stuck in time. She has no future. She has no past. She's just a body that's performing and she wears herself out. And and then she just doesn't have the will to keep doing it anymore. In fact, that I chose to die. She said that in past tense because she literally tried to get the Duchess bodyguard to kill her. Yeah. I mean, she incited him to kill her, and that's how she got beat up so bad that Michael was able to buy her and get her out of the brothel. But that is, you know, that hopelessness of sin is almost, you know, there's some people who can't even accept the gift of redemption until God brings them to their knees. And that is the worst place to be, but at the same time, there 
is the best place to be because you've quit relying on yourself mm-hmm. and you can rely on God instead. And you know, when we're working on these show notes before we record, we, we, we always try to, to get scripture that, that ties into, um, the particular theme. And sometimes it's frustrating because you, we know that the scripture is in there that speaks exactly the way that we're looking for, but we can't remember it. <laughs> yeah. And it, you know, it's, it's just the way, the way it is. But Romans 6, 22, through 23 speaks of the transition from the sinful life to the holy life, which sort of applies here. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free with regard to righteousness. So what fruit was produced then from the things, from the things that you are now ashamed of? The outcome of these things is death. But now, since you have been set free from sin and have become enslaved to God, you have your fruit which is which results in sanctification and the outcome is eternal life for the wages of sin is death but the gift of god is eternal life in christ jesus our lord and in particular that brings to mind to me the difference between being trapped in this situation and being freed from that mm-hmm. situation so, you know, a young girl who's sold into sexual slavery and then who's rescued by law enforcement, it's that significant a change mm-hmm. and more so for the folks who are rescued from being slaves to sin. Right. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting because one of the things that I know that some of my Christian friends had against the story was, you know, at the end where Michael is actually praying to God, please let me go after her. And obviously was hearing that he needed to stay put. And and then he's asked multiple times by Miriam and Paul, why don't you go after her? And he says she has to return of her own free will. Mm-hmm. And that is, you know, a point of contention among a lot of Christians as to whether we come to God out of our own free will or whether he takes us out of our sinful nature and uh, redeems us despite you know any anything that we can do on our own and it is a point of contention that it's a debate that I don't think can be won but I'm of the opinion <laughs> personally that it's both and I maybe that's a cop out but I think God wants us to want him but at the same time we can't redeem ourselves we, there's nothing we can do to earn that salvation or even to reach that salvation without him prodding us and making us come back and yeah. one of the things that i took note when i was reading the book of hosea was the last chapter of the book of hosea starts with israel return to the lord your god for you have stumbled in your iniquity take words of repentance with you and return to the lord say to him forgive all our iniquity and accept what is good so that we may repay you it with praise from our lips assyria will not save us we will not ride on horses and we will no longer proclaim our gods to the work of our hands for the fatherless receives compassion in you and then god answers by saying i will hear the heal their apostasy i will freely love them for my anger will have turned from him i will be like the due to israel and it goes on from there it reminded me of this controversy that we have that says you can't return to God. God has to reach out to you. But yet God told Israel, return to me. He said it there in Hosea, which is yeah. you know the, the source material for the story. And so I see where... It, it's not like God didn't know that they would eventually come back either. 
because God knows all possibilities and all eventual timelines. (laughs) Right. To to go back to the Marvel thing. But, you know, that's the thing is, is that I don't think that having her return to Michael of her own free will in any way detracted from the the story no, that God redeems us. Yeah. And and that her return to him was she'd already been redeemed. She had already been reached out to by God and changed and turned into a new person. And this was just her acting out of that love to return. And so I don't see that as being a you know, a rightful way to be upset about the story because yes, she returned to Michael out of her own free will. And there are times when we are lost in our sin, we can't redeem ourselves, but we can return to God. When we turn away to take part in sin that we shouldn't be doing, we can turn back to God. We're already redeemed. That doesn't in any way mean that we did anything to redeem ourselves. It just means that we have to make a conscience inspired decision to return to God when Hmm. we stray and he calls us back or we couldn't do it, but we still have to make that, that attempt to return. And so that, that is a beautiful thing too. The last thing that I wanted to talk about real briefly is all that glitters is not gold. That's actually the phrase that was on the screen that started the movie. And it is a, a very popular quote, but I think that, what it portrays in this movie particular is the fact that they keep, you know, saying over and over again how absolutely beautiful Angel is. She's like the picture of beauty that just makes every man last after her. But underneath that beauty, she's rotten and desperate and wanting death and ugly on the inside. And because of her sexual slavery or, you know, and really it's a picture of our bondage to sin because of her bondage to sin, she was beautiful on the outside, but ugly on the inside. And I think that that's one of the things that we have to remember that, you know, especially as Christians, but as to reach out to people who are lured by the pleasures of this world, that those pleasures, that sinful world that they live in is not going to satisfy them because it's glittery on the outside, but on the inside, it's absolutely disgusting and horrible and it's leading them astray. Even to the, to the point that, you know, the, you know, the big thing right now is the whole transgenderism, you know, that people are different on the inside than they are on the outside. And all of that is true. We're all different on the inside than we are on the outside. That doesn't necessarily mean we should be trying to change the outside to match or force other people to see us differently than what we are in nature. That's a whole nother topic. But my point is, is that those kind of people that we see in the world who are lost in their sin, they are suffering on the inside because they are chasing the beauty and the pleasures of this world and finding nothing but dissatisfaction, shame, and all of the other things that sin brings. It's just yeah. ugly and disgusting on the inside. And the few scriptures to put point towards that is, this is when Samuel was seeking out a king to replace Saul, and he finds, or no, it's, it's before he finds David. Yeah. He's looking yep. at David's brothers, yeah, and saying, you know, surely these are the kings. And the Lord says, do not look at his appearance or his stature because I have rejected him. Humans do not see what the Lord sees, for humans see what is visible, but the Lord sees the heart. And that's First Samuel sixteen seven. Mm-hmm. So just a reminder, we look on the outside, God sees what's on the inside. And that is 
important for us and it's important for the people who are lost and need Christ. And then in Hebrews 11, referring to Moses, Hebrews 11, 24 through 25, it says, By faith Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter and chose to suffer with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasure of sin. So he was raised in a royal household. He had access to all of probably sexual slaves, you know? Yeah. But he ch- he chose to flee from all of that because it's uh, it's pleasure on the outside, but it will degrade and destroy you on the inside. And then in Judges twenty one twenty five, it says, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did whatever seemed right to him. And that is really, honestly, that is portrayal of California during the gold rush. Because <laughs> you see Duke actually tell Angel when he re-encounters her that he came out to the West because there were no, no laws to stop him. <laughs> yeah. Yep. That is just a reminder that sin may look beautiful on the outside, but it will lead you to a really bad end. And so you should avoid it at all costs. And the the pleasure is fleeting. Yeah. If there's any pleasure at all. Yeah. You may end up being just like those poor sex slaves, putting on the appearance of eagerness when on the inside you have nothing to offer. And that is where sin takes you. Thankfully, we are saved and there is salvation for anyone who is living in any of this. I mean, if if you happen to stumble upon this co- podcast and you are needing help, just know that we're here to help, that any Christian will help. If you just speak to us, we will look. We're not as perfect as God. We can't see directly into your heart, but we will lead you to the one who can see your heart and know that you are repentant and you want that redeeming love. You want salvation. It is there. You can reach it. And we would like to be the vehicle of that, or any Christian, honestly, would be like yeah. to be the vehicle helping you find it's it. Our, it's our greatest hope. Yep. Yes. Yes. Well, we've already wrapped up. We've given all of the information you need to hear throughout this podcast, and uh, we don't know what we're doing for March yet. We are open to suggestions, though I've By the time we get this posted, we may have figured out what we want to do for March. But we do hope that you will contact us and join our communities and continue to listen to us. Thank you so much for listening. I'm E. Franklin. I'm Tim Martin. And And don't don't just watch. The Christian Podcast Community is a cohesive group of like-minded Christian podcasters proclaiming the truths of Christ with expertise and passion in the areas of theology, church history, Christian living, evangelism, apologetics, parenting, homeschooling, sermons, and much, much more. So check us out at ChristianPodcastCommunity.org. One stop for all your favorite Christian podcasts. ChristianPodcastCommunity.org.